people that have been marginalized, formerly not considered, formerly disregarded, are brought together in an endeavor of knowledge co-production. There is hope. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Emmanuel Osute, who is a research fellow at UCL um, in the Development Planning Unit at the Bartlett Centre. Oh my God, this might be the first scholar we've had from the Bartlett Centre before. You guys are the real deal. (laughs) Emmanuel's core research focus is on disaster risk reduction, poverty reduction and climate change adaption. Emmanuel's work with and in community organisations to improve the welfare of poor, vulnerable communities in formal settlements across Sierra Leone, Tanzania, Ghana, Uganda, Malawi and mainly in East and West Africa. Emmanuel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the very kind invitation and the very warm welcome that I've received. Yeah, I'm very happy, happy to join you and uh, Looking forward to our conversation. It'd be really good if you kick off this episode by talking a little bit about the article and the work and research you've been doing in Sierra Leone and responses, community and local collaborative responses to COVID-19. Okay, great. So the the article that, um, well, that you saw, um, which we're calling Fighting COVID-19 in Freetown, Sierra Leone, and it's like looking at the critical role of community organizations in a growing pandemic really falls part of a, a large research program that um, I have been doing in Sierra Leone with, with uh, colleagues at, at the DPU here at UCL in partnership with another research institution called the, the Sierra Leone Urban Research Center uh, in Freetown. So we're looking at uh, a variety of issues, not just COVID, but looking at how our work can amplify the voices of the marginalized, mainly people living in informal settlements, can build capacities of community organizations. In that process, can also try and influence policy-making uh, processes and decision-making processes. And we've been quite successful at that. I can talk about that a bit later because we've been able to link with the office of the, the mayor, uh, which is quite an influential city-level you know, uh, partner to have. So, so the paper really falls within this very big ambit of ongoing research, ongoing uh, investigations, ongoing community work at the very, very grassroots level. And when COVID came, one of the things that we did was to re-examine a lot of the work we've been doing has been looking at resilience, city-level resilience, and how um, cities that are prone to disasters and are fragile in certain ways can build their strengths and resilience uh, in, at the community level, at the grounded level. And so when COVID came, we kind of looked at those same communities. We're calling them informal settlements because they are not really recognized legal settlements uh, areas in, in, in the city. And we can talk a little bit about why they're informal and what we mean by informal. But we decided to look at those places because they were at risk. The conventional uh, approach to managing COVID of, of self-isolation and hand washing was going to be difficult because of the, the difficult 
conditions that people lived under, the developmental challenges and the, the deficits to services that people had. And so we looked in these communities, about six of them, and we were able to draw up some lessons at the very basic level of how people were coping, what they were doing to survive, what they were doing to cope, how they understood the pandemic and who was helping them and who was doing what. And also then able to sort of draw bigger lessons at the city level and at the national level that are, are useful for us who are interested in research and practice and, and also useful for even those of us who live outside those kinds of jurisdictions and we'll be working there. I came across your paper with your co-editors and collaborators um, a couple of months ago now and I remember reading it and thinking this is incredible like it thinking about and reading about community responses at that local level and Mm. how they were tackling from the very onset of COVID-19. These things that we know living in the UK have been so poorly managed. So one of the things that I thought was incredible was seeing how local organisers had put the forefront of their campaigning, trying to demystify and create um, literatures which were not kind of creating moral panics around what COVID-19 was. And it was really interesting to see how that had built on from the infrastructure of responses to Ebola to see a community thinking about how false narratives about a pandemic can have long-term implications that need to be tackled from the outset for me like reading that base in the UK and knowing about how much these false narratives about COVID-19 and more recently looking at vaccines for example biggest challenges for us so it's just incredible to see that. When people think of somewhere like Sierra Leone I think of civil wars right when the kind of northern context put in there that things like civil society the idea of these different layers talking to each other resolving their problems they seem to be obliterated from the narrative of, of most, most African countries especially ones like Sierra Leone or Liberia that have been affected by civil war because the narrative I've seen is civil society doesn't exist in all the documentaries I see civil society doesn't exist it's just individuals in a war-torn country yeah. That's sort of bringing to the forefront, T, like our kind of, as much as we try to our best to be critical scholars, mm. our Orientalist kind of yeah, yeah, 100%, narrative 100%. and perspective that comes through. So we're, so I'm, so me sort of saying, this was incredible to read this. I'm kind of reinforcing these things that I need to be unlearning. Of course, of course, there was incredible community responses in Sierra Leone. Like, of course. That's true. And I, I'm happy you said this because it's, Part of the kind of reaction that we've gotten is that people are, have shown a lot of interest in, in learning about how people cope in places like um, uh, what was called the developing parts of the world. And we decided to look at how communities were adapting and coping and what communities were doing. One of the interests was to quickly try and get something published and get something out there. Because there is that challenge. One of the biggest challenges is that African stories aren't published and the stories from below don't really get published. And so when you sit in the the global north, you're not able to kind of understand what goes on because there is that gap in knowledge in terms of published uh, material. So that was a big priority for us. And that's why we really pushed to try and get it 
out as quickly as possible. When we talk about, like you said, places like Sierra Leone, Liberia, or uh, Rwanda, or even uh, um, Angola, these are, I mean, Rwanda and Angola are arguably the two of the nicest places to be in Africa at the moment. But when you talk to the average person, all they can think about is landmines and, and, and a war. And, and, and that isn't really the reality anymore. It, it has a, a, a greater benefit, not just telling people the academic narrative and, and community responses and telling people that community-based uh, disaster risk reduction really is possible. That really is part of my objective as an academic. But I think the broader objective is to tell a, a balanced story of what really goes on at the grassroots in Africa. And it serves many purposes and it has many, many benefits. And I think that when we look at vulnerabilities, especially from the, as a, as a, as a scholar of disaster risk management, disaster risk governance, we, we talk about the critical components which is vulnerabilities. Actually, disasters don't occur unless people are vulnerable to them. I mean, if it starts raining helter-skelter today, you're not at risk of a flood because you live in a house that has a roof. If your house didn't have a roof, you are at risk of a flood. You are vulnerable to the flood. Remove vulnerabilities, you have reduced people's disaster risk. So disaster risk actually is a probability, is a likelihood that people suffer when a serious hazard occurs because they are vulnerable to it. So actually... The way in which we tackle people's disaster risk is to remove vulnerability from them. And that in itself becomes one solution. It's not the end of the story, but I'm just simplifying the narrative. But you can see that the, the vulnerabilities of these places really come to the surface. It comes at the forefront of the narratives, of the discussions, of the headlines. And one of the objectives with my team, especially at the DPU, with the teams I've worked with, with all the wonderful colleagues and the work that we're doing, is not just to highlight vulnerabilities, but to balance the narrative and show what we call capacities, respective capacities, capacities to act. So when we are talking again in the context of disaster risk reduction, when you're talking in places like Malawi, in Sierra Leone, in, in places that are developing rapidly urbanized, in places that have developing deficits, it is possible to say that the needs are there, the challenges are real, but no, the capacities also exist. And that informal settlements are not just homogeneously poor. Actually, informal settlements, because they've existed for such a long time, there are people who are graduates, they're university graduates living there because of a lack of opportunity. There are recent migrants into the city who have capacities and, and artisanal skills, and they are still living there. And so it's a way in which we point that positive narrative that informal settlements are not slums. Actually, we shy away from the term slums because the slums are very negative. Actually, some informal settlements in Africa are quite beautiful. It's just because they are legally not designated as a formal site. So the informality comes from the legal designation, not from the housing quality, not from the housing structures, etc. And so that balanced narrative is very important, like what you're saying, T, that we need to, to put the balance both in research, in practice, in journalism, in tourism, in everything that we do, so that it's, it's fair for, for the people that we work with. And it's fair for us who are telling the stories and it's fair for the listeners and the readers and the people who are consuming news and information about Africa to also get this very balanced picture. And I think that that's, that's what it is. And so the paper really has three mega themes. The mega theme of managing information, the mega theme of dealing with grounded politics and, and, and the dynamics of politics at the local level as an important element to disaster risk reduction. And of course, the last theme is this idea of humanitarian response, effective humanitarian response, even at the local level, even at an intra-country level. And so these are the three main themes that, 
the paper tries to bring out that we've looked at how working with communities, working with community organizations, working at the local level, teaches us important lessons about managing information, dealing with politics, and helping to sustain effective humanitarian response in a time of crisis. Fire. That's fire. That's fire. <laughs> sick. Yeah, yeah. That's sick. When we talk about COVID, when COVID happened, information, arguably, people say this, you know, from the experts, the guys that work in, 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 the, in the field of disaster management, et cetera, will tell you that one of the biggest challenges to dealing with a pandemic or with an epidemic in the, in the, in the case of, of other parts of Africa where they've experienced things like this is not just infrastructure, it's not PPE, it's not funding. One of the biggest challenges to managing an epidemic is actually managing information. Misinformation can be as disastrous as a de- as an infrastructure deficit. You could have the best hospitals, you could have the best ambulances, but misinformation would actually make it redundant. You can see world-breaking scientific innovation, producing a vaccine in record time, but misinformation can lead to people not taking the vaccine. And so you see that managing information is actually very critical to action. And, and it's not just information, but also misinformation. Actually, I, I choose to, to separate information from misinformation because it deserves a focus on its own and it deserves an attention on its own and it deserves a concerted effort to actually deal. It's not just what do people know and what do people need to know. That's information. But what do people know that is wrong? What do people know that it's false? What I drew up from the paper was, and what I think is quite interesting is how they delivered COVID-19 information at the local level. So you have different groups doing different things related related to different parts of information and also making sure that misinformation gets corrected. But kind of draw it in the paper a little bit is the idea of WhatsApp delivering information. This is quite interesting because conversely, at the start of the pandemic in the global north, Mm. we had lots of problems with misinformation on WhatsApp. Where they had a kind of advantage in your paper in Sierra Leone was Sometimes the message was delivered electronically, but also delivered by word of mouth, by someone physically going to someone and telling them information. We needed that over here because between the 5G and China and everything else, it was madness, all delivered online by WhatsApp. That was problematic. Yeah. So I think that the tools are are tools. So the the information is not... Is, is separate from the tool. So WhatsApp becomes the tool and the medium. And what is shared mm. is what is important. I think that information needs to be owned. Information needs to be validated. Information grows, diminishes, or actually transforms in a medium of trust. Mm. I mean, actually, that's important, that, that we need to focus on... The reason why it was successful in Sierra Leone is because it rode on an infrastructure of community organization through which trust had been built validation had been built. It was not the clever nature of the language. It was not the the sources at the end of the message, but it was because these things existed. And I think that that's a bigger message to the UK and it's the bigger message to the Western world to invest in community structures that can build trust, accountability, validity, verification, etc. before a pandemic happens. It's important to note that the structures were not formed for COVID's sake. It is structures that have been leveraged upon in the wake of a pandemic. Of course, there's been some new ones, there's been some reformed and reshaped ones, but largely informal settlements are very organized. And that's a very important message that it, it abides in almost all the work that I do. We try to project the levels of organization 
the details of organization, the skills and the capacities that exist at that level, that can be leveraged upon for community mobilization, for disaster risk reduction, for education programs, etc. And then to show that communities therefore can be become useful partners, even for the development partners. We actually have seen that in Sierra Leone, certain international organizations are now partnering directly with these, the leadership of these community organizations for relief and for aid efforts, etc., because they can see that it works. So that's a very important thing, that WhatsApp is a medium that has been bastardized and, and, and bashed and, <laughs> and abused. But WhatsApp can become a useful tool because in places where the internet is not, you know, browsing on certain websites may not be everything for everybody. People may not understand it, where there may be people of different education, diversity. There's a diversity of education backgrounds. People are illiterate. Some people are semi-illiterate. But even that even is a, is a what does illiterate mean? They may not have formal education, but they're very educated in different ways. So it's a tool in which, because of its accessibility, because you can form groups, because you can divide the settlements into groups and have WhatsApp groups for the different uh, groups of the settlements, it has become a very useful tool to send verified information, leveraging on the structure so that they understand that the chairman of the, of the disaster management committee is the source of verified information. And then they do that bridging. So you see that across Africa, across even the UK, there will always be this official source. There's always this website where, you know, that's the official source, but not everybody has access to it. Not everybody understands it. Not every, It's not legible in a way to everybody because not everybody understands the stats or the dashboards, etc. We need to break it down into bite size in a way that is trusted by somebody, by a community structure, etc. That's what the council should have been doing. You know, we should have had groups at the council level, at the very, very local level. I think the one of the abiding messages of my work over the last six years is that governance, risk governance, be it disaster risk, be it climate adaptation, etc., is most effective at the lowest devolved level of local government. And in the UK, where there is a, a very elaborate structure, this is where we need to look at COVID management. It's great for the prime ministers and the, the ministries and everybody doing this briefing on BBC One, etc. But actually, we should empower councils at the local level to do something for the locality. That's where trust is built. That's where community cohesion is built. That's where suspicion and mistrust is taken out of the, the picture. And that's one of the biggest lessons from Sierra Leone. And that's what we see happening in the paper. Yeah. In the UK, there's always a narrative between building trust between the local and the institutions, yeah. right? So there's always a certain, like, so for example, in the black community, building trust between the police, there's always an, a narrative. Is there something similar to Sierra Leone that build trust in relationships with these institutions and local community groups? Yeah. Because like I said, is it to do with the fallout of civil war or is it something that was always present in Sierra Leone? No. So I think that the there is, it has a check at history. So there's been times of good, there's been times of bad, etc. If you're looking at just post-2001, so post-Civil War Sierra Leone, it's a deeply divided mm -hmm. country. The, the war had a lot of ethnic undertones, so there's a lot of mistrust. The, the war brought this melting pot. The Freetown, this capital city, becomes a melting pot of everybody who would run away from the provinces, from their homes, into the capital. It's a small city by African standards. You know, it's a, just 1.1 to 1.5 million people. So not a mega city, not a city over 10 million. As we, the classification of a mega city will be over 10 million people, that kind of thing. So it's not a mega city, but it's not small for the land area. It's a very small strip of habitable land, you know, surrounded by mountains, if you look at it that way. It's a very narrow city, uh, originally planned for about 300,000. Now 
well over 1.2 million. So it's a very heavily dense uh, region. You can see the mountains, the Sierra Mountains. You know, it's called Sierra Leone because it looks like a lion. You know, the the mountain face looks like the of a lion. In Portuguese, Sierra Leone means the Sierra Lion. Actually, if you look at the the West African coast, the first settlers in the in the 15th century were uh, 14th and 15th century were Portuguese. They were the first. You know, then the the sailors mm-hmm. of Prince Henry were the first to to brave that Cape of Good Hope and and to reach the the new land, which was supposed to be the the West African coast, the Gulf of Guinea, and it had natural occurring harbors. So one of the first places they settled was in Ghana, in a place called El Mina. It means the mine because they found a lot of gold deposits, etc. I mean, I'm I'm digressing, but I'm just saying that this rich historical places have had a, a checkered history, and. If you look at the city, Freetown, as a melting pot of everybody who came after 2001 and the war and, and et cetera, it, it grew too fast. Rapid urbanization didn't meet the, the developmental needs. It didn't need, meet the, the provision of services, et cetera. So there is a development. There is a, a large need for, for, for water, for sanitation, for adequate housing, et cetera. That is true. And, and, and it's created pockets of the country, especially along the coastline, and along the estuaries in the in the inlets and and some parts of the hill surfaces where people are rapidly you know living there building structures without planning permission as we call it in the UK etc making them informal but what happened with building trust is that the word build itself is functional you don't assume trust you don't you don't jump on a a, a process and think that that would lead to trust informal settlements have organized themselves in a way that they have been actively working towards an agenda where the government will recognize them, would deem them not illegal, would, would drop the threats of eviction, etc. And it's taken quite a while. There's a, as a, a part of the work we're doing, and some of my colleagues are documenting the whole narrative of, of, of slum upgrading, the agenda towards slum upgrading, as, as they call it. And it will tell you that it takes time and it takes efforts on both ends which builds that kind of trust. It takes evidence. One thing that happens in Sierra Leone, in Ghana, in Tanzania, is that the collectives of informal settlements, they belong to a network group. They call it Islam and Shark Dwellers International. And this organized group would have like an NGO that will support them locally. And what they do is they do these enumeration exercises. They collect data about the settlement. They collect data on the arrest. They collect data on maternal health. They collect data across a variety of variables. They collect in developmental data about themselves. And they use the data as, as a means to negotiate and to ask government for help. And that has seen a lot of progress and a lot of, of success in, in many regards. So I think that the trust has been built over time. And I think that there needs to be a deliberate effort at brokering trust where it doesn't exist or where communities, whether it is in the UK or any other parts of the world, where where there needs to be that, it cannot be assumed. It's a deliberate, there's an intentional process of building trust. And I think that that's the point that we can also learn from Sierra Leone. You can see that now the office of the mayor that you could saw, you saw from the paper is working with the informal settlements. That didn't just happen in a day. That is a product of about four years of lobby, of showing the, the resourcefulness within these communities and how they are able to, 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 to reduce risk and become development partners, as it were, 
if you were able to give them the chance and give them a voice and give them the opportunity. I think that that's, that in itself is a, is a process that needs to be built here in the UK as well. If you live in communities that, that there is that gap and, and, and the chasm in trust. Yeah. One of the problems they might encounter, and, I, and again, mm. I think this is a problem for trust, is that by definition, them being in informal settlements and them being vulnerable. Yeah. So they lack the institutional power mm-hmm to reinforce their any claims or any trust that they might have built up. So at any point, mm-hmm. if, a, if there's a change in government direction or if there's a shift on a geopolitical scale that would affect them, they do not have the institutional power Absolutely. to maintain that trust. What I always kind of find in these relationships is the, is the people who are where the brunt mm-hmm. of... Of, be, of being vulnerable. The burdens because of, yeah, yeah. Mm. There's a problem with, with the idea of trust because it, it almost seems it's weighted in favour mm-hmm. of those who, are, who have the power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's that's true. And I, I don't think there's an easy answer to this. And also because the the answer will be contextualised. You know, it's, it's got to be context. Mm-hmm. It's got to take, it's got to take into, into bear the, the history. It's got to take into bearing the, the politics, the local politics, the politics of the day, because like you said, even, even local politics changes, etc. But I think one thing that also I find instructive and, and helpful is that, like you said, the language may not change, you know, and, and informal settlements by description always almost disempowers people. It tells them that they are not wanted. We can see that they are not making long-term investments into an area. They see the area as a transient area. Everybody's just hoping and, and praying that they can get some resources to move out of the area, etc. It breaks down community cohesion. But some of them are, are, are literally trapped there for, for, for decades. And one thing that we've seen is, is that through our research, we call something partnerships, and we call them partnerships with equivalents. And it's, it's almost an argument that we are making that, that partnerships are a very powerful and useful way through which you can balance the the curve. You know, the power dynamic and the hierarchies are balanced mm-hmm. through partnerships. If you can work to bring decision makers and communities, people that are victims in, in, in quotes or people that suffer the, the burdens and the, the impacts around the table into a partnership for a development agenda, it is an empowering process. It's empowering because it's got benefits from both sides. You know, the government is able to see the opinions. I mean, I've seen this this almost aha moment. I mean, I was working in Tanzania in Dar es Salaam where we had like a, a municipal senior executive and, and we took the person to the informal settlement. We've been coming from London and working with partners and they live in Dar es Salaam had not actually visited the settlement, which was under their jurisdiction to bring measures for health and safety measures, etc. And they were shocked. They were like, wow. You know, there was an aha moment. It was like, oh, this is what people are living in, in your own country. And you see that it's not to shame people. It's not to, to bring antagonism. It's, it's partnerships brings the value of, of dialogue, the value of deliberation, the value of what we call co-production. Knowledge can be co-produced. Solutions can be co-produced. Interventions can be co-produced. And when they are co-produced, they are collectively owned they last a longer time. There's a lifespan to it. People can see where their voices fit in. People can speak up where it doesn't work for them. And that's the challenge. And the challenge is that if you look across Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, if you if you do an analysis of, let's say, developmental policy, there is not a, a lack of policies. There, the challenge is the implementation. The challenge is the operationalization. The challenge is the financing. The challenge is the doing. It's not the writing. It's not the setting up of policy. The, the secondary challenge is 
even where policy is being operationalized, it's not working well because there is a disconnect between the people that need the intervention versus the drafters of the policy. You see the language is the same. It's written by consultants who the country for two weeks and flew out. It's copied from one end to another. It's very colonial in language because it's trying to, to reinforce a system that is outdated, but they don't know that it's outdated, etc. That disconnect and so on and so forth really is the challenge. And so co-production brings what we can call the, the voice from below, the picture from below, the, the idea from below, so that the partnership and collaborating with informal settlements really doesn't always yield a one-sided benefit. It doesn't yield a one be- It may not lead to trust building, but it may lead to somebody being heard. It's it's a process. It is a, a journey that we, we call pathways. You know, a pathway has to start from somewhere. And we've got to be very sincere and, and honest and realistic that true change that happens as far as development is concerned sometimes isn't overnight. And actually the, the change in opinions and mindsets and 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 the ways in which people are perceived and the ways in which people are considered in itself is, is should be celebrated. There are these micro progressions and micro celebrations of progress. And I think that that in itself is worthy. Even for me, I mean, I grew up in Ghana, lived in Ghana, first 22 years of my life, lived in suburban parts of Accra. I've traveled the country. When I started working and I went to informal settlements in other parts of Africa, it was a bit of a shock for me. My eyes were opened. There is an unlearning that international development needs, not just at the top level, but all the way right down to the local communities. There is an unlearning that even development policy makers in country, in Africa, need to make. And, and engaging with informal settlements brings part of that unlearning. When I saw the informal settlements, and you can see that they are not just homogenous, and you can understand that people have lived there for 40 years, and so their kids have been born there, they are graduates, they are master's degree holders living in the informal settlements, and so there is capacity, and so there is opportunity, and so there is there is a, an availability of skills, there's an availability of knowledge. It's not just a slum, it's not just for the downtrodden. There is capacity that needs to be highlighted and worked with. And that unlearning is important for development planning because we need to deconstruct how we think that the policies must be written, how they must be worked out, how we draw an organogram and a structure, how it looks better. There's a paper that I'm writing with a colleague and um, I think that hopefully it should be out in the next couple of months or so. We're calling it just on paper. You know, it's it's looking at the, mm. our reflections from, from extensive work we did three years in Malawi, in the north of Malawi. So a small town, not a city. And and it was good to choose that one because it was almost like a, a control case where you're looking at, we worked in large cities like Dar es Salaam, Accra, Ibadan, Freetown, etc. But you want to work in the small urbanizing, the now setting up, now growing, so you can pick the challenges and, and hopefully correct them. Because actually... The, the, the corrective measures in the last city are, are daunting and bigger than in a smaller urbanizing center. So we looked in Karonga, just at the very top of North Malawi. Malawi looks like Italy. It's a, it's a narrow, long country. It's longer than it's wide. So it looks like a, it's, 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 yeah, it's a very long country. It's, it's connected almost at the border between East and Southern Africa. In some regards, it's Eastern. In some regards, it's Southern. And if you drive along it, it's bordered by Zambia, Mozambique, and Tanzania at the very top. So just near the tip of Tanzania, just about 20 miles from the border of Tanzania is where we work. And we found that the policies exist, beautiful, elaborate, but they don't work because they exist on paper. The structures 
that should enable effective operationalization at the local level are bereft with a lot of problems. And that is where, personally, as a policy analyst, as a development practitioner, whatever you choose to call me, really piques my interest. Why is it failing? Why is policy failing? How can we empower people to make it work? And one of my answers is that community organizations are the way to go. The lowest devolved level is the way to go. And, and, and it comes through over and over. That's so interesting, Emmanuel. And it reminds me of, there's a section in the paper that we're, we've been talking about that I just think is really powerful to sort of lead us onto our next section, talking more broadly about the work you've been doing. You say here, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought to the fore the disproportional burdens borne by informal settlement residents in herbal settings, but the responses of the communities are seen through this inquiry balances the narrative of how their needs do not equate to helplessness. Instead, it demonstrates a range of ground level capacities that deserve to be highlighted and harnessed for continuous development planning and implementation. It's a, a beautiful quote. If I... <laughs> it's a brilliant yeah, quote. It's, it's so it's lovely. So nice. I think we... Oh, wow, that sounds nice. Whole paper reads like that. I was thinking that in the history of, in particular, Sierra Leone, that nuanced at, that, at those lower levels mm-hmm. is not really kind of taking attention. It's people that people seem to take power from the top. Yeah. This kind of reinforced when you look at the kind of aid flows. It's all about surface or high level power. Yeah. It's never entered the conversation or it was always at the high level. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of looked at at the lower levels, what happens with, with, with this policy. So even when like Valentina Strasse took over, mm-hmm. they're taken over for a group of people, a clique of people. When who took over? Sorry, Valentina Strasse was the young guy, wasn't he? Was he the... Yeah, one of the youngest entrants Africa has ever had. So when they take over, they're taking for a group or a clique of people who are at the top. And even though they're looking for... I think this kind of gets lost in the translation where the, the idea of looking at the nuanced lower levels is kind of dismissed and it's looking for those huge power grabs yeah. to have kind of this large transformative power, yeah. which it, it really does. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that that's the challenge. The challenge is that working from the top, you know, power from the macro level, decision-making from the macro mm-hmm. level, interventions from the macro level, don't necessarily lead to transformation at the lowest level. Mm-hmm. It doesn't lead to transformation where it's needed the most because of a number of challenges and a number of reasons. And that's a very, very, very valid diagnosis. And I think that what, therefore, we are trying to do is to paint this picture of the need for the voice from below, the opinions from below, the participation from below. I mean, a lot, a lot of the policies talk about participatory elements, but the participatory elements don't normally happen. Nobody is consulted. The other challenge also is that the policies dismiss informality. Informality is part of Africa's urban fabric. I mean, there is no city in the continent that has no informal settlement. It's just a matter of what, to what extent and to what, in, to what vari- variation and, and to what percentage. I mean, it, it goes from about 35% to about 70% informal. The economies in themselves are informal, but we're talking about housing and, and demographies and, and um, settlement informalities. Very, very rampant. So actually, for policies and development policies to exclude or to ignore informality is to, is to produce a set of policies that are divorced from reality. They are inapplicable. They are not a reflection of the truth state. I was talking to students uh, a few months ago before the Christmas. I was teaching a module with a, with a colleague, and I used an example of what we call the a master plan. You know, master plans are 
are the development models in Africa. You know, so you see this very glossy picture with high-rise buildings looking like Dubai and the Middle East, and and given this picture of this is what our cities should look like, fair and good. But then they they show you where those master plans have been overlaid over people that are living there per- currently, and it doesn't take into account the real where would those people go. You know, so when you see the master plan, you see all these lovely malls and a, a, a boulevard, and then you see how the the the, the major rivers and, and and water bodies that run through the city. Almost every city in Africa has a major river because that's how the the settlements would have been built. You know, in in the colonial era, etc. And how do you how do you clear all of these people and and how do you move people away from their settlement? Where would they go? What what it doesn't account for it. So there is that unrealistic nature. And so dealing with local power dynamics is very important, especially because like in Malawi, where we highlight, there is a, a confluence, there is a, an overlap between what we call orthodox power, you know, you know, power that comes from, you know, the, the ballot box, you know, power that comes from uh, the voting systems, democratic power versus customary power, traditional power, power that comes from chiefs and rulers and, and, and traditional authorities. They have power in many regards. You know, the urban areas used to be villages once upon a time, and their land has been literally encroached by the, by the growing city, you know. And so what happens to that? How involved are they? To what extent are their voices heard, etc.? And then, of course, there are various kinds of power dynamics that are, you know, pseudo-religious. You know, most of these urban centers, religious leaders are very powerful and very respected and revered. So your point is very important, that development planning must must understand local-level power dynamics. We make it quite clear in the, in the COVID paper as well that in order to be effective in reaching the people and, and, and building trust, again, back to the trust problem, you need to understand the local-level power dynamics and you need to be able to navigate it properly. And that's where the community organizations come in, because then they become more than just a gatekeeping role, where it's just community organization would allow you and introduce the chair and then they go. But they tell you where to go, who to speak to, who is more effective, etc. And this links to the last point that we make in the paper about the sustenance of humanitarian efforts, you know, where you, you can't have an organization flying, jet in, jet out with, with bags of, of help. And then and who's vulnerable? How do you get the vulnerable person? You know, a few weeks ago in the UK, we filled a, a, a census, a very, very elaborate piece of, of a document that took a lot of information away from us because it is useful to analyze and to be able to, to, to tell who lives where, which group is what, who is vulnerable to what, etc. In Africa, the census data may not be that elaborate in some regards. And so the community organizations have, like I mentioned, through those enumerative exercises where they collect data on the communities, they know who lives where, they know who's vulnerable, and they know who needs to be prioritized. They know where the disabled are. When we are talking about the the varied needs, uh, the intersectional needs of people, single-headed households, female-headed households, disabled people, etc., they know and they are very useful in the in humanitarian relief distribution, but the sustenance of it, the identification of vulnerability. Remember, I made that point about removing vulnerability from people. It's always the first objective when you talk about relief. There isn't relief if vulnerability is not is not removed. Actually, then that's temporary. That really is a sticking plaster. You must always think about where are vulnerabilities concentrated, no matter the geography, and where can what can we do to reduce and remove vulnerability from people. I keep saying that the hazard is not the problem. Even if you have a 100-year rainfall and you have a good house, 
you would not flood. <laughs> if you have good drains, if you've got good infrastructure, you would not flood. It's not the quantity of the rain. It's the infrastructure. It's your vulnerability to it that leads you to a disaster. And so the sustenance of humanitarian efforts is a very important thing. And that's where the community organizations also come in to make it meaningful. I've seen disaster relief being a useless endeavor where it's just a photo-taking opportunity. You know, people just pile rough and then they, they have people come in and smiling and shaking hands and that's it. Or storing it in the warehouse and not knowing what to do with it. And then they, they make the headlines that X amount of hundreds of thousands of dollars or X amount of dollars has been spent in relief. Relief for who? Relief for what? Aid for who? Aid for what? And so you cannot talk about aid for people. I mean, I can't walk into your house and tell you how to help you unless you tell me where to help and what to do. If you're moving house or you're cleaning your house and I want it to be helpful, I need to listen to you. You know, so you can't walk into somebody's house and be helpful without listening to them. And that is the challenge. Actually, it is very disrespectful to work with communities without their voice or their opinions or hearing them out and hearing where they need to be helped and what they want you to do. And that is part of the whole narrative of trust building, diminishing the politics and the hierarchies of politics, etc. that everybody needs to hear, not just the people from the West, but even decision makers in country need to hear this kind of story as well and work at it, building progressively, incrementally, gradually. That's what we are hoping for. Yeah. So, Emmanuel, thank you so much for everything that you just said about that paper um, that you guys put together on Sierra Leone and COVID-19 it's just so interesting and there's just so much to take from it and obviously we've been talking more broadly about some of the other work you've done across West and East Africa but for now it would be really good to end the episode on on you telling us a little bit about no knowledge in action for urban equality shaping pathways for urban equality the research that you're involved in no, I thank you. I think the the research that I'm involved in, it's a four year. We call it a program actually because it's not just a project. Program, a yeah. Research and capacity building program, uh, which is called the Knowledge in Action for Urban Equality, and it's led by uh, Karen Levy uh, at the DPU, but it's got partners uh, across. I mean, we've got a, a range of partners. We're working in twelve cities in three regions of the world. So it's, it's, it's quite a large program. It's a seven and a half, nearly seven and a half million pound, uh, funded program by the GCRF. And, uh, um, it's, it's looking at, like we said, knowledge in action for urban equality. We, we, we're seeing that urban areas can become very unequal spaces. And that's true quite across the world, but especially in the developing parts of, of the world, we see that urban areas are the melting pots for economic activity, but actually they have become very unequal places for people that live there. There's lots of income disparities, differences in opportunities, differences in access to services, and so on and so forth. And so looking at that, we have partnered with a number of organizations and institutions, some of them academic, some of them very research and practice oriented, some of them NGOs. And across these 12 cities, what we are doing is that we've asked the partners to prioritize uh, a project uh, that would look at how develop a development challenge that is common to them or they are, they are, that is of interest for them. And, and their prioritization 
and that developmental project really is is is, is their work. And so they did that, and they they suggested it. It has nothing to do with us. We didn't say look at this one or look at that one. They brought their own priorities from below, and and from the cities. And what we've done only is that the framing of the of the program program allows us to look at three development challenges. So a challenge of resilience, and we're talking about resilience, mainly environmental and climate resilience. And we're talking about prosperity. So looking at how people can can thrive and, and, and have improved well-beings in the cities that they're living in, not just from an economic side perspective, but across many other things that are of interest. So the prosperity is not just with the Gini coefficients or GDPs, et cetera, but looking at it from the number of indices. And in Tanzania, my colleagues and I are developing what we call a prosperity index. It's a separate paper that we wrote uh, last year, which I can share with you afterwards. You, I'm sure you'll be, look, you'll be interested in looking at it. We're calling it co-producing the prosperity index. So what does prosperity mean for communities, apart from just money and cash. And and the last development challenge is is extreme poverty. So not just poverty, but extreme poverty. So beneath that that income line that the World Bank is assuming that people should live uh, uh, by, there are communities that are living in very, very challenging circumstances. So in these 12 cities, all the projects have been designed to address one of these three or more. And, and, And we are looking at ways in which there can be a grounded understanding, appreciation, solution to these challenges and lead us into a path of transformation. So the output is not just academic papers, but an output is a very, that's what we call it, knowledge in action. The output is a very tangible, action-oriented uh, intervention that we can present to city government, city officials, decision makers, or actually work with them in partnership. In some of the cities, they are working in partnership with them. And looking at how these cities can progress and move beyond those development challenges on the basis of an of, of a grounded four-year study with, with, with cases, with, with tangible uh, evidence, you know, knowledge-based uh, uh, evidence that, that we, are, we, are, we are able to, to generate in this period. And so that's what the project is all about. How can research, capacity building at the local level in 12 cities lead to advancing these cities onto pathways of urban equalities by reducing extreme poverty, improving prosperity, and improving resilience. These three, we we believe that once you are able to do one of these three, you are advancing onto a path of urban equality, yes. The idea of like knowledge production. Yes. I'm thinking of in terms of knowledge. So when knowledge is produced at a local level, ruling elite, take that knowledge on board, right? I think your point is that how relevant or how respected is, is, is local knowledge? What is the relevance? You know, to I mean, we can be successful in a project, but then so what? Would it really lead to action? Mm-hmm. Would they respect the community's voice? If we are able to say that X community says they want this, does it actually lead mm-hmm. to? The relevance is that we are saying that it's not just knowledge production. There is an important two letters that for, that follow that precede the word production. We're calling it co-production. Co-production is a methodology, is a process, is an approach. You can describe it in many ways, but it's powerful. What we're saying is that the co-production is bringing mixed knowledge sources, even including from the decision-maker level. So from the municipality, from the NGOs, from the community organizations, the leadership of community, ordinary residents, people that have been marginalized, formally not considered, formally disregarded, are brought together in an endeavor of knowledge co-production. There is hope. There is promise. 
Because if you partnerships, we call it partnerships with equivalents, and it involves people respecting diminishing power imbalances, you know, reducing hierarchies, etc., sharing knowledge, etc. If this works, then we have a case of promise. And that's what all the 12 cities have done. They are engaged in the process of knowledge co-production, where all these different knowledge actors are riding on partnerships, riding on relations. The partnerships are nothing but relationships. So all the partners that we have were not new in terms of the main lead partner in the cities, NGO or university or otherwise, are people that we work with and build relationships with. And then we ride on that relationship for them to build new relationships in city of the actors that are essential for the problem at hand. So for instance, again, in Sierra Leone, they are building what they call a city learning platform. And the language is very useful because they are trying trying to say that, look, we need you to learn with us. We need to teach you something, you teach us something. There is this exchange, co-learning going on about the development challenge. And it's leading to the decision makers at the city level understanding it better from the perspective of the community. And, and breaking down of this antagonism of the city versus uh, the communities or the, the, the government officials versus the communities, it, it is not always successful. We cannot romanticize the process. But actually, there is a lot of evidence. There is not just our project, but there are many other projects. There is a Mistra project that we've, it's just, you can Google it, it's called the Mistra project that has done, again, in about five countries that have experimented the process of knowledge co-production and seen there's a lot growing amount of literature. We've written a, a paper on it a couple of years ago in 2019 on, on how knowledge co-production is useful. It changes the power dynamic. It rebalances the narrative. It opens opportunities. It also creates, you know, even the paper that we wrote in Tanzania uh, last year, it creates new spaces of democratic deliberation. That in itself is a success in many, of many, many, many uh, places where we are working in terms of development planning, where the, 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 the forum for public participation, the forum for negotiation, the forum for discussion in itself is the success. So the success is not just the outcome, but the success is the process where you have been able to generate a new process where people can dialogue, can deliberate, can speak in itself must be celebrated as, as part of the, the pathway. So the pathway isn't only when communities without water get water, but the pathway is when communities without water are engaged in the conversation about what kind of water they want, where will the water point be, 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 be situated, what do they need? What do they need apart from water, actually? Who is affected <laughs> by the lack of water, et cetera, et cetera. So it is that democratization. We, we, we define uh, urban equality across four dimensions. And maybe I'm going to end with that, maybe just to, to highlight what our understanding is. And when you, when you appreciate what our understanding is, it means that if you've been able to make progress across any of those dimensions, it is worth celebrating. It's not an all or nothing. And I think that's the reality of, of, of action research, of, of participatory research. You're, you're dealing with people's daily, real-life you know, challenges, and, and progress must be celebrated. And it's, it's also not, not to discount the challenge that, that there's a lot more work that needs to be done. But even the, the, the partnerships that are brought together as part of the project, the new relationships that are brought together, will continue. That's one of the legacies of the program. Actually, I worked on, a, on, a, on a, a, another large program between 2015 and 2018, looking at urban risk in, in seven African countries called the Urban Act Project. And we've seen that some of those relationships have continued. In fact, some of the biggest impacts have happened 
after the program or project has officially ended, funding has ended, we have closed our books, it is the organic nature of real partnerships that have been formed through co-production that is really yielding lasting effect. And that is what we want to celebrate. What I was saying is that we, we conceptualize urban equality across four dimensions. So you realize that the cities are working on development challenges, the three of them that we mentioned earlier, they are addressing it in different ways. They are forming partnerships. They are examining ways to, to solve these problems. They are creating pilot programs and, and programs and projects and, and trying things and experimenting and trying to, to infiltrate policy spaces and, and speaking to decision makers. All that is happening. But then the analytical lens, as far as equality is concerned, is that we're saying that these cities or these interventions should lead to what we call equitable redistribution. So an equitable distribution means a city where the people living in the city have equal access to the resources and the, the, the benefits of the city. And, and that is what would be one dimension of urban equality. So if you have a city where people have equal access to resources and the benefits, and there's an equitable distribution of resources, then equality is happening. The second dimension is what we call reciprocal recognition. Reciprocal recognition is that a city where everybody has an equal voice. You know, the city authorities recognize everybody. The decision makers recognize everybody. Everybody can be, can be involved, participate, speak, negotiate, be consulted, etc. Then we are seeing that that is a, that is a, a city where the, the recognition of the diversity of, of, of forms of, of, of communities and, and the diversity of people that live there, the diversity of demography, the diversity of, of migrants, of, of refugees, of whoever it is, that reciprocal recognition is very, very important. The third thing we call it, we're calling mutual care and solidarity. And that's a very emotive element. We thought about it a few years ago. The emotive element of care and solidarity. And have an equal space where there is no care and solidarity across different groups, across different classes, across different societies, communities, etc. That is a very integral and important component. And the last one is linked to the reciprocal recognition, is that when you recognize people, it leads to political participation, a parity in political participation. Are more are some constituents or some groups able to engage more than others, then that's not an equal city. So this is the kind of ways in which we're looking at it. And we've got, I'll put our website again in the in the resources for you to share with, with people. And we've got quite an elaborate website with a lot of the work, videos, documentaries, reports, papers, and we're in our final year. So we're in the year of the production of, of outputs. So I'd encourage you to, to, to keep an eye out for all the, the interesting stuff from the the cities that we are talking to, that we're going to be uh, bringing out in the in the next few months. Yes. Oh, Emmanuel, that was that was literally incredible. Like I'm just sat here, just smiling and nodding because it's so. Like obviously, we try and have kind of we try and have quite a lot of critical conversations on this podcast. But it is always brilliant when we have conversations that bring about sort of hopeful possibilities, mm. practical community cohesion that's happening kind of on a global scale. Like it's just so, it's just brilliant to hear about, and it's really I don't know about you, T, but it's made me feel slightly uplifted on this cold April afternoon. Like because yeah, like as well as kind of it this conversation being a process of unlearning our associations with um, development. Um, 
continuing to do that like it's just so good to hear about so many positive things that are happening with regards to yeah co-production of knowledge resources that definition you have about urban equality that multi-layer definition is incredible no, thank you. yeah so Emmanuel thank you so so much for joining us today no my pleasure thanks thanks for the invitation and thanks for uh, yeah, great conversation. I think it's... Uh... Listeners, um, we hope you enjoyed that conversation and learned lots like Tiso and I. Patrons, there's another episode for you over on our Patreon now. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 